Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Critical Oxygen Podcast, where we help you optimize your physiology and maximize your athletic potential. I'm your host, Phil Batterson, and today we are joined by continuing guest host, Aaron Geyser, where we are going to talk about predictors of performance, but from an applied perspective. Aaron, welcome back to the show. Phil, thanks for having me back. I guess I, we, we handled business the first time around, so mm-hmm. we, we have a second go at it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, Man, these like podcasts that I've been able to record with, I have like four other guest hosts or four guest hosts essentially. It's so much fun because I get to just like talk science and talk, you know, shop about all the stuff that I love. And, you know, so it's been giving me so much energy and, uh, our conversation last week, like, I think what did we talked about? Like so many different things. And I was like, yes, this is, this is going to work out. So, um, I, I'm so glad that you're available and able to, uh, you know, continue to come back, come back on. Um, we were just talking offline. I wanted to get a quick update about, about your race. It's about a week out. So how you, how you feeling? Tired. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, I, uh, I had a couple of like challenging, intense workouts this week, but the volume was down. Okay. And it's just funny, I guess when you, when you get accustomed to a certain training load and then you decrease that volume, your body just kind of goes through that. What the hell's going on? Like standpoint. And I, uh, I'm 100% in it. And those, those harder workouts definitely felt like the soreness stayed in the legs a little bit longer than I would normally accustomed to because I'm, Hmm. I guess it's just more of I'm already jumping into another workout really close to that session and whether it's just kind of stimulating blood flow and everything else to just not allow lactate to stick around for too long or it Mm -hmm. just felt like some of those stayed in the legs a little bit longer. But we're here at the back half of week one of taper and I'm starting to feel a little bit better from the er like the workouts earlier in the week, have a couple of tests this weekend and uh really decrease volume again next week and or especially leading into the travel day on Wednesday I'm trying not to do anything that just leaves myself too taxed cuz we are driving to the event and stationary for that period of time is yeah. always not the body's best friend but we're getting there early enough that there's going to be a couple of days post the drive that's going to allow the body to kind of freshen up and, and get some blood circulating and get primed ready for racing sweet yeah it's always been it's always interesting to me how you know everyone talks about oh tapers are you know like the best way to go into a race and all of that but then you talk to people who are actually tapering and they're like man i actually feel like garbage <laughs> you yeah. know like and it's just like it's it is, I, I don't, I don't know what to make of it because sometimes I'm like, well, maybe, you know, maybe a less aggressive taper would be a little bit better because you're then keeping your body at that kind of like primed level of like recovery. You're staying in the same habits of, of moving every day. Um, you know, flushing out the legs, right? you like one of the big things you do with the taper is you cut your volume, but you maintain your intensity. And if, if your volume is super easy, you know, then maybe, maybe you don't have to quite as much, but it's just kind of the, the nature of it, right. Is you reduce it quite a bit and go from there. Well, it's, it's funny. I haven't, I haven't exposed to so many different athletes. You have, 
you have from the top to the bottom, you have such different experiences in a taper. And like, especially my elite swimmers, now triathletes, I think that they went through such an aggressive taper in their competition swim background that it's it's so different in a triathlon perspective that they're like, oh, I still feel like I'm doing something. I, I, I get the impression that swimming, they just, they gave a heck of a lot. They had these really short workouts and taper compared to especially what they would do on a normal training build. Mm-hmm. But they were so short, they just had some really, really sharp efforts to them, but they were short in duration and they felt like they just weren't doing anything from that week. And I almost walk away exactly what you're talking about. Maybe that was too aggressive for, for them. And often when I have athletes exposed to my tapers for the first time, they're like, man, you still do quite a bit. And I'm like, well, we don't want the body to kind of get lethargic or, or kind of, I almost feel like it cements you up a little bit. You start mm-hmm. like a little bit more tight. You're not moving as fluidly. It just, I feel like there's that right balance and sometimes it's different from person to person, but I still feel like that recipe is activity. You know, it's still, Mm -hmm. you can't just pull it completely away and kick your feet up for two weeks or whatever it is. And, Oh, I got a race tomorrow. I haven't done anything in two weeks. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. And so what's your, what's your, uh, typical taper look like like for an athlete you you don't really know them very well you say okay this is like our general prescription so of course my coaching mind starts to say well how many hours are you giving me but so there's a lot of different things but kind of the general is we're gonna give kind of a a strength two weeks out monday we're gonna kind of give a strength bike so heavy gear work around race wattage but likely you're going to see a little bit of suppressed heart rate in that just because it's more of a neuromuscular workout rather than a true cardiovascular so your heart rate's a little bit lower but you're putting out some race efforts Mm -hmm. um i try to get individuals in the pool especially two weeks out as much as they possibly can whether it be five to six days a week yeah most people will be happy to, you'll be happy to get them in there three. But I, I just kind of think that the good kind of lymph stimulation is just good for the body to kind of stop that creating of stagnant blood and just lactate kind of stalling in the body. So I, I will traditionally have one endurance day, one speed day, one threshold day, um, try to have a strength day so we're using some paddles and uh, pull buoy Mm -hmm. and if you can give me that fifth or yeah fifth day in that case i'm taking it and utilizing some form of just kind of whatever your weakness is whether it be alignment we're doing some side kicking if catching's maybe your weakness we're just kind of building in drills on that particular day Mm -hmm. and if you can again give me six it's either most likely it's just going to be another endurance day or a recovery style just maybe 15 to 2000 meters in that case of just something on your own running VO two max early in the week. So like this, it was a fairly large session from a volume dose, but I did 12 repeat one case on Tuesday this week. 
Yeah. But it was more at race pace rather than kind of the VO2 max style of, of repeat. So right. it was uh it was more of just kind of dialing into race pace efforts for the one K coming back for 800 meters is a recovery. So it ended up being a fairly meaty session, but it mm-hmm. wasn't very high in, in stress in that case. Cause it was, you got your break for 800 meters, came back for roughly four minutes. I was holding race pace and then back mm-hmm. down. So nothing too crazy. I, um, I then just from a body feel standpoint this week, I did an endurance r- uh, run on Thursday when I typically would have maybe some slight continued tempo, but I just didn't feel recovered. So that would be kind of an adjustment that I would make with an athlete is just, how are you feeling at this point? Um, I, the other thing is I, I lead a Zwift ride for Endure IQ on Wednesdays and, uh, it was one of my favorite sessions and I can't go into too much detail because it's one of these ones that's really kind of, it's, it's a threshold builder, mm-hmm. but I probably should have toned down the, the Watts a little bit on that one. But I, I feel like still it related well to what I was doing from a sharp effort. Yeah. And, um, it probably just added to some of that fatigue, which made me make that decision to make it an endurance run on Thursday or on Thursday. But for the most part, what I want to see is one higher effort on the bike, along with the strength effort, one VO two max, typically with a um, tempo run to follow that up with a day of rest in between into mm-hmm. the weekend we're still going to do a endurance run but it's going to be a lot shorter in duration and uh on satellite like tomorrow i would traditionally for most of my athletes that are racing the following weekend where we're doing about an hour and a half bike where we're just having we'll go out hard and we decrease descending efforts but we ex- we expand the amount of time. So we'll go one one minute rep, two minute rep, three minute mm-hmm. rep, four minute, and then a twenty minute sustained effort. Um, it's it's just kind of a primer in that case. And yeah. then race week, I still want to decrease. Most of your workouts are no longer than an hour, and we're just on Monday, kind of given a little bit of sustained ten minute race pace efforts on the bike Tuesday, um, five minutes on five minutes off at race pace for a run. Um, depending on when your travel day is, I kind of then manipulate what type of stress I want to take in, how long you're going to be traveling, that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, typically for a Saturday, We'll have, uh, we call it the Plues Primer, which is just a, a bike that, that has, it, it's kind of that descending power and ascending time, but it's really, really short, mm-hmm. just kind of sharpening the body up on the bike. Then you get off, do a 15-minute run off the bike where the first 10 minutes are at race pace, five minutes just kind of shake out and shut it down. Then day before the race, we're just kind of, if you can, this is the one that's probably the most missed, but just try to give you 10 minutes in the water, hour on the bike and like a 15 to 20 minute shakeout run. Nothing, nothing of any effort, but more just kind of 
making last adjustments on the bike if you need to, but nothing hard and just kind of feeling the flow of the day. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that was, that's super detailed. I think if anyone is looking, you know, to, to go into, you know, half Ironman, Ironman sort of thing, that, that would be a really good, good thing to follow. Um, obviously you need to know what the person's volume is, what their intensity is in order to be able to actually adjust that accordingly. But it's, it is interesting. I've always found that when I've coached triathletes, getting them in the pool as much as possible seems to help to maintain kind of that like connection with the water, right? It's, it's such, let's be honest, humans weren't really born or bred to swim, right? We're, we're runners, cyclists, you know, to some extent, just cause you can get on the bike all the time, but swimming it's so foreign to us and it's so the more you can actually just practice that movement, the better off you're going to be. Um, but it is hard. It's, it's hard to get into the pool, you know, three to five times a week. It's like, it's a time investment. But the other thing that I think where athletes make the biggest, like triathletes make the biggest wrong assumption. One thing that we teach is look at triathlon as a group of events. Like how you perform in the swim is going to have an effect on how you bike and how you run. Mm -hmm. So if, yes, you might look at it, and I think a lot of triathletes look at it and say, well, I'm going to spend the less amount, like the least amount of time is going to be in the water. But if you burn more matches in that portion of the event, you can't meet your full potential in the, in the bike or the mm -hmm. run. So we find it not only important from that, but then kind of like you're talking about, it keeps you with good feel in the water. Yeah. It, I really, I find it a fascinating place after a big loaded weekend, getting somebody in the pool Monday, early in their endurance work on Monday, having a lot of drills, a lot of kicking, kind of getting the blood flow really allows the body to respond well from that heavy load over the weekend mm -hmm. and i feel like so many triathletes just well i'm not going to spend enough time in the water why why spend the additional time in the water to get that well if that time gives you 10 more minutes on the bike and 10 more minutes on the run that's a pretty you, you might not gain four or five seconds per 100 but you could gain in those other two disciplines why not put that investment in, in time in that, which is just going to make you have a better day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think with swimming too, it's essentially no impact. So if anything, right, it's giving you the ability to recover because you're not using your, your legs as much. So you can recover better from the bike. You can recover better from the run. And then if you're more fit in the pool, like you were saying, you're, you're operating, uh, at a lower percentage of your, of your max. So then you're not burning as many matches when you finally get to the bike, when you get to the run, uh, that's, that's actually, that's a great way of thinking about it because when I did my Ironman, I don't know, back way back in 2012, I was like, I, I hated swimming, always despised getting in the pool, but I tried to get in, you know, like, I think it was like four to five times a week. And, mm -hmm. My swim was trash. It was like an hour, like, you know, hour and 20 minutes or something like that. But I knew it was, it was in the Ohio river. So you just go up just a little bit, it's protected, but then it's, you're coming back down and there's a current with you. So I was like, 
okay, we're just going to go, you know, nice and easy, you know, just stay relaxed, do all that. <laughs> and I, I think that did in, you know, in terms of there were a lot of other things I could have done right during the day, but I think that was something that went well for me and allowed me like, you know, this is, I didn't have a power meter. I didn't really even have like a, like speed or anything like that, but I was able to average, you know, upwards of like 20 miles an hour on the bike. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that really helped. I think I cooked it on the bike though. Cause I was like, so, j- so jazzed. Um, but yeah, I think, I think being more fit in the water, it, it, just because you're not seeing those changes to your time, like, you know, per 100 could also just pay, you know, dividends later on. Right. If you're going at a lower intensity, you're going to be burning less carbohydrate as well. Oh, and, absolutely. and go ahead. I was going to say, and protecting those carbohydrate stores is going to be really important for performance ultimately in, in any race that you do. hundred percent. And I also recognize with the more swim video that I, I continue to look at is that a lot of swimmers are activating muscles in the swim that we don't want to activate. And I've found that individuals that might cramp quite a bit within the bike portion and the run portion have that kind of kick on within the swim because their form on one side or I mean, really it could be on both sides. The breakdowns forces them to have a greater kick to maybe keep their body in a little, like not even in great alignment, but in somewhat better alignment so they're activating their hamstrings almost the entire swim and they end up almost cooking that muscle before they get to when they mm. actually vitally need those muscles. And it, it again, that's just time that you can spend in the water can benefit to prevent that from taking place. Yeah. Yeah. That's Super interesting. It's always been something that I I don't really think about very much just because I'm not a triathlete anymore. But the swim is so technical and dialing in good form could be, you know, kind of the difference between you, you know, say doing like a like an hour 10 or an hour 20, but also, you know, losing 10 plus minutes on the bike and the run, you know, if you're if you're, you know, going all out. And that's actually a perfect a perfect segue into our predictors of performance because one of the most important ones is efficiency or economy. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, in triathlon, right? It's like the, the awesome thing about triathlon is that you have to be good at three different bl- disciplines, but the challenging thing about it is you have to be good at three different disciplines. So the, like just, taking time especially at the beginning right if you're if you're new to triathlon or if if you're you know trying to just get better looking at form especially running and swimming i would say is going to give you math could potentially give you massive gains without really doing much right because if you could you could just switch a few things and then have impeccable efficiency Whereas if you're, if you're not efficient, it doesn't matter if your VO two max or your lactate thresholds are high. If you're wasting all that energy, you you know, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. So, um, yeah. So today our whole goal was to, is to talk about predictors of performance. And I talked about it with, uh, Dr. Jacobs, um, earlier this week, but 
what I want to talk to Aaron about is, okay, so we have our VO2 max, which is our maximal oxygen consumption, our uh, how big is our aerobic engine. We have our thresholds. There's two thresholds. Um, you know, your, your lower threshold, which kind of delineates where you're maximally oxidizing your fat. And then your second threshold where you're kind of going from sustainable to unsustainable exercise intensity, obviously, depending on how far you're going. And then you have your efficiency and economy. So um, I wanted to talk to Aaron kind of like the importance of these variables, especially in his realm of, you know, like longer distance cycling, Ironman, half Ironman triathlons, um, and those sort of things, just to get your perspective on it. So I think we can kind of start with VO2 max. It seems to be everybody's baby, right? You know, they're like, Oh, I got to have a high VO2 max. My, my Garmin watch says my VO2 max is going down, even though I'm getting faster. What does this sort of stuff mean? Um, so I guess my big question for you is like how, how much, um, weight do you put onto somebody's VO2 max? Is it super important for you? Is it kind of secondary to other variables? What do you think? It does have some correlation to a predictor of performance, but I also think from the long distance triathlete, what we're really trying to sharpen in that competition phase is really sustainable long efforts. So mm -hmm. what I do recognize and see is that your VO2 max often will start to trend downwards when really in that bigger block, just because we're more simulating specificity in that case. And as we know, VO2 max, whether you go the short realm or the long realm, it's a very small segment of time. And with where we are trying to get an athlete comfortable in the long distance triathlon world is sustainable effort. So mm -hmm. it, it's not something that I place a great deal of significance on in especially kind of that six to eight weeks out because we're more trying to move other parameters in that case. And it, it, it's, it just, I find that it's a, it's significance at that level is just a little bit lower falls in the importance round. Now, if you're looking at a sprint distance triathlete mm -hmm. or an Olympic distance, a little bit of a different conversation because you need to continue to keep kind of those, whether it be closer to threshold workouts or VO2 max workouts in the workout really up until competition day. It's because they're using a little bit of a different energy store uh, source in that case. Mm -hmm. And the, I just call it redlining. They're, they're kind of in those particular races. They're, they're more of trying to reach that maximal anaerobic output Mm -hmm. not looking for the sustained aerobic output at that point. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. I think the shorter the endurance distance that you're doing, the more focus should really be on things like VO2 max. Like, uh, for example, a, you know, 800 meter runner, a 1500 meter runner, maybe, maybe even up to like a 3k, 5k runner, right. Should really focus on that, that really high VO2 max, because mm -hmm. you're going to essentially be operating at that red line or as close to VO two max as you possibly can up to, you know, 12 to 14 minutes of effort. Whereas the longer you get, I think you VO two max is always like kind of a prerequisite to performance. Like you still need to have a high enough VO two max. And I think, um, 
Olav, uh, the Norwegian coach, was talking about this, right? When when Christian and Gustav were switching, you know, from like their sprint stuff to their Ironman stuff, they they stopped focusing as much on their VO2 max and started focusing more on that sustainable power, exactly like what you're talking about. And I, I think that that's a very that's very valuable insight because what I've been kind of talking about on my Instagram lately is like, you know, this idea of like pyramidal versus polarized training. And I think with people who are doing longer distance stuff, doing more of like the, the polarized training, you know, like the really easy stuff with like, say like VO2 max work in the beginning of the season mm-hmm. isn't very sport specific, but it could be useful. And then switching towards more of that pyramidal style stuff where you're focusing on, those longer sustained efforts, those threshold workouts, those other things that are going to be more indicative of your actual race. Because let's be honest, like if you're doing a half Ironman or a full Ironman, you're not even going to get close to your VO2 max. And if you do, you're in really big trouble. Um, you're going to have to spend a, a heck of a lot of time recovering from that uh, accidental effort, you know, in the middle of a 112 mile bike. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's not going to end real well for, no. for anybody in that case. <laughs> yeah, that, that might be a that might be a good train accident to watch happen, just because it's it's going to be an ugly one. Mm-hmm. I know. I yeah, I, and I think too. You know, it's like you don't. I don't think you see that in like say the half Ironman, Ironman distances, but you certainly, I would certainly see it in eight Ks during my uh, cross countries stuff for, for the, uh, community college I ran for. It's like, you know, you'd have guys who'd go out and run four forty five for the first mile. And, you know, they, they'd be beating me by, you know, 15, 20 seconds for the mile. But as soon as we, right after we hit that, they're, they're toast and yeah. they're, they're not walking, but you know, they're, they're, I go by them like they're walking. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, and these were, you know, your 800 meter runners who were kind of a little bit more like, Oh, I just got to go balls to the wall the entire time. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's kind of, at least that from my perspective, that's a, it's a good rule of thumb. The shorter the distance, the more you're going to focus on VO two max, the longer the distance you're going to focus a little bit more on, you know, that, that high sustainable, highest sustainable effort. And, you know, is then, you know, the further out you get, the closer that highest sustainable effort's going to be leaking towards that first threshold versus that second threshold. Yeah. And I want to reiterate, Phil, you brought it up perfectly, but I want to hammer it home that even for the long-distance triathlete, VO2 max is going to have its important point at some point in the season. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's got to be kind of, it fits the context of the season and you draw it up that way. It, It just does not have as much relativity to the racing season as it does to kind of the preseason off season or just getting in that general phase part of the season. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And that's, that's something that I think everybody needs to be aware of is, uh, you know, you should be progressing and you should be changing up your, your training style throughout the year to elicit the type of physiological goals that you're trying to hit. Um, you know, whether that's closer to race, race season, um, or in the off season where it's like, yeah, now I can actually like build, build my engine a little bit so that when I do get into, you know, a little bit more of those like longer threshold workouts, I can sustain, or it's, it's not as like much of a, of a stress, right. When you first go to start hit your threshold, cause you have that big engine to be able to kind of 
deal with that, those differences in power? Well, I think it's also kind of opening the communication of pathways within the body as well. And sometimes we get so comfortable with what we're good at that we just kind of hammer that home. But in a lot of ways, that closes doors, that closes opportunities for your body to signal certain physiological aspects to open up the skill set or for the development of that. And that's where it becomes very, very vital is that sometimes you just need to expose yourself to it to allow the body to kind of open that door and allow some form of success or development in that aspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, I mean, you know, law of specificity, I think rules all, but it's, you know, if you're always going slow, like, you know, some, some people, some coaches I still hear is like, Oh, we're doing base building right now. You're just always going to do slow stuff. You never do anything hard. And, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, I, I understand because you're trying to build volume and adding on intensity to that can be, you know, maybe the tipping point. But at the same time, if you never practice that high end, you know, VO2 max work, then like you were saying, you're going to shut doors in terms of your body's ability to adapt later on in the season. So you have to be doing something. I, I, I think of training kind of as like an equalizer, right? Like if you ever walk into a sound studio, right, you have all of these different things that need to be moving, you know, in order to keep everything equalized. And, you know, yes, at the beginning of the season, if you're doing base building, most of that lower end equalizer is going to be pretty high. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're talking about polarized training, then maybe a few things, you know, maybe your 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 low frequency stuff is going to be you know, moderately high and, but it's always, it's always changing and they're always, everything is always engaged a little bit because that's, it's, it's like once a wheel gets spinning, it's easier to keep it going than it is to stop it and start it again. So. And that's another thing also where just kind of where you are in the development of your sport. Like if it's fairly new to you, you probably are going to get some benefits of maybe focusing more in one element or another Mm -hmm. because you might not have actually the baseline physiology to adapt really, really well. So in that case, if you, I, I think that that would be the only argument to that comment that you say is, if you're new to all the sports, maybe it is greater to spend a little bit more time in that aerobic development, mm-hmm. kind of callous yourself off to that point, build the mitochondrial density and capillary response and some of these other vital aspects of your body that are vital in performance and then start to then sprinkle in some of the VO2 max threshold and then mm-hmm. build that up to tempo. But that would be the only thing where I would give just a little bit more context to it is if you're fairly new to the whole process or sport, sometimes maybe just kind of pulling it back and allowing the physiology to be built up robustly before you start throwing those sharpeners could, could also be some value there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we see too with, uh, say high school athletes, like cross country athletes and stuff is a lot of the times during the summer, you know, you're just trying to accumulate a lot of volume because, by accumulating a lot of volume, once you start to get into the race season, you start to actually see the the ability to sharpen, right? I think I think Peter Atia actually says it pretty well. It's like, you know, your zone two stuff kind of sets the sets the base of your pyramid, and then your VO2 max kind of sets like the the point and how high that point can be. And your goal is is to maximize the area 
of that pyramid. So, you know, if in, in, in all honesty, if you're brand new to a sport, really anything you're going to do is going to give you adaptations. It's just a matter of staying consistent at that point. So, you know, and it's easier to stay consistent when you're just building volume and going, you know, doing kind of like slower, easier miles, because once you start to get up into that high intensity stuff, your, your fatigue accumulation is like exponential. So you you just got to be careful, especially in the beginning, like don't, don't overuse intensity. I think a lot of people have a tendency to try to do that in order to get in shape fast. Um, but if you're playing the long game, you have to, you have to increase that volume play the short, the, the slow game, literally and figuratively. And, you know, then that's going to set you up for success later. You, you sprinkle in the intensity in order to sharpen, right? Yeah, a lot of, in I, I guess I'd, I'd never known it, but I use a little bit of a different terminology, but the same premise that Peter does in that case. I always, I always when I'm talking to athletes early in the development stage is that, I compare it to a house like the more solid that foundation is, the larger that that foundation is, the bigger house we can we can build. Mm -hmm. And that's the terminology that I often utilize. But it's the same principle as that that pyramid. So I think that that's an excellent way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I I really like how Peter Tia has really made, you know, kind of like say zone two training, you know, kind of like like put it onto the mainstream. Um, I think, you know, there, again, if, if you're only doing zone two training, then you're missing out on your, on your high intensity stuff. So, you know, you can't have a super myopic focus just on zone two training, but it is very useful. And I mean, I think the, you know, where this kind of comes into play, right. Is if you're doing zone two training, that should be at your first threshold. So we're kind of switching over to thresholds. Now mm-hmm. that should be at your first threshold. Your first threshold is an indicator of, well, in, in all, if, if in an ideal world, it should be that transition point from your maximal fat oxidation towards more glycolytic. Um, but we use ventilatory variables, which are, you know, based on CO2 production, metabolic acidosis. We use lactate, which is again, a shift towards glycolysis, um, nears variables where we have, you know, decreases in, in SMO2, all of which are going to indicate a shift from fat oxidation towards, uh, glycolytic. And so I guess my question is, is how, how do you guys, you know, like with, with Endure IQ, how do you guys use or monitor somebody's say zone two, do you like what, what sort of protocols do you use to try to estimate that? Because, you know, it's like, it's hard, it's few and far between to come across, you know, somebody who's got, you know, say a metabolic analyzer that has CO2 and oxygen. So you can actually just measure fat max. We have to, we have to estimate it. Well, and I think that that's, we probably go across a couple of different lines because we do have athletes that have that ability to to go down that path and get us more laboratory-based information. And of course, that makes kind of designing those zones a heck of a lot easier. But mm-hmm. where most of our athletes fall is really at a place where, you know, the generic, we have to sometimes take threshold levels, like where your heart rate is at your threshold pacing. But others where if we have more file workout files to analyze we can start to kind of see where that fitness lies and where those points of 
kind of LT1, LT2, and, and anything in between that kind of start to lie. And it, it, it does, especially for our one-on-ones where we might be coaching athletes all over the world, it might take a little bit of time, but we're looking at recovery wellness measures. We're looking at kind of what type of environment they're training in, what their nutritional background is, how, how they're fueling on a day-to-day basis. Then we add that with the numbers that we see purely from their workouts. All of those factors kind of then start to allow to draw a picture of where we can justify where those where those points are within their training regimen. But it, it's it takes time. And of course, when you're looking at it from that standpoint, there's still guesswork behind it. But mm-hmm. Phil, as you know, there's some people that are better guesswork with all that information, and there's others that are still just gonna kind of blindly throw a dart at the board and look for hope for success there. So I really feel like it's just us utilizing our scientific background to apply mm-hmm. what what we're seeing into what their what their zones need to be. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things where, you know, if if for example you're like, Oh, I'm pretty sure their, you know, their zone two heart rate should be hundred and fifty, for example. But then if all the data that you're also gathering kind of points towards, you know, lower HRV, lower sleep quality, more stress accumulation, all this sort of stuff. You're like, well, zone two work is supposed to be one of these ones where we can accumulate a lot of volume and not be accumulating more fatigue. So you would obviously like, it seems like very evident to me. It's like, you have to reduce the intensity then. Right. But I, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people get obsessed a little bit with like, you know, power output, for example, like they go and they get a test. And if you, if you're, if you are fortunate enough to be able to go get like a lab grade test, you go into a lab, typically you've recovered for the last like couple of days. So you're coming in with pretty peak performance. Um, you know, in an ideal scenario, you've eaten three hours beforehand. So you've topped off your glycogen stores. So you're going to have like the best possible, uh, you know, sort of substrate utilization and other things like that. And then you do this test and then they come back and they're like, okay, well, your first, your first threshold was at a heart rate of, you know, 150 and a power output of 220. Your second threshold is, you know, higher heart rate of 165 power output of like 300. This would be a pretty, pretty fit athlete. Right. Um, and, but then that athlete just takes that as gospel. They say, okay, well, based on that one test, that one static marker of a test, now I have to ride all of my zone two work at what I say, 200 Watts or two twenty. Yeah, yeah. At 220 Watts, no matter what my physiology is saying and no matter how I'm, I'm reacting to it, if I'm reacting to it, I'm just being soft. You know, if, if it's too hard for me, I'm just being, being soft and weak. Um, and then I have to do all my threshold work at 300. And, you know, I think, I, I think w- what I'm trying to say to people is that, Power output is a good way to estimate where those zones should potentially occur. But I think you need to have internal feedback, whether that's RPE, whether that's heart rate, to to then gauge how that's actually changing on a day-to-day basis. Because based on the fatigue you're accumulating, based on the uh, the stress that you're you're going into, and if you don't have a coach to talk to talk about this with, uh, then it's really hard to actually be able to recognize it. 
those those power outputs at your thresholds are going to shift on a day-to-day basis. Uh, like for example, I've been doing uh, I, I've been doing some like over under rides where I I I think so my maximal ox my maximal skeletal muscle oxygenation steady state is like 260 watts. So uh, in a fully recovered setting, I should be able to maintain 260 watts for. 30 to 60 minutes like that would that would really probably be the maximum of what I'd be able to do it at earlier this week I tried to do or no last week I tried to do these over unders where I would do 208 watts for three minutes and then I'd bump up to 273 watts for um, two minutes and I, I kept trying to go back and forth with the idea that oh 208 is pretty pretty substantially under my 260 so I should be able to recover do those 273, which is like just a little bit above, you know, my, my second threshold. And it was awful. Like I was only able to get through like 45 seconds of the 273. The 208 was not a recovery at that point. Felt totally horrible. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe, you know, my, my uh, second threshold was, was lower that day just because I had been putting in quite a bit of, of volume and accumulating a little bit of fatigue came back today and was able to do it really easy. So it's one of those things where if I wasn't looking at like heart rate or I wasn't, you know, kind of like, you know, kind of analyzing how my body was responding, I would have just been like, well, wow. Like my, uh, like, you know, it was, it was super hard last week and I super, you know, super easy this week. So my fitness has gone up, you know, a ton in the last week and like, no, 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 no. My fitness definitely has not gone up that much in the last week, but, but some yeah, athletes it, take that approach mm-hmm. and it's like the reason why we like to utilize Watts is it's a static measure. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, it, it's going to be, if you're utilizing the same power meter day in, day out, week in, week out, it's it's going to provide you with should provide you with the same numbers at that particular effort every single time. Mm-hmm. The difference is the body does not operate off of a static. No. It's not static in any way, shape, or form. And like we, your your comment there just makes me gravitate towards well, your anaerobic work capacity or your W prime. You just your, your battery wasn't charged in that mm-hmm. case. And that's one of those things that I try to have those conversations with my athletes is because I am often, I might be a text away, but I'm not right there with them. And for them to be in that moment and say, eh, today it just feels different. We need to make adjustments. We, we still have these other things that we measure off of and then back off of the watts in that case. So mm-hmm. it's the, the great thing about the time that we're in is that great individuals and great companies are continuing to bring more and more measurement tools to our fingertips. Yeah. And when one doesn't feel right, there's another measurement that you can fall back onto, like you talked about muscle oxygenation. So if, if the saturation is just not there, I need to back it down. And you have other athletes that will be trying to take lactate numbers. So, I mean, there's so many different things that you can kind of play off of this. It's, 
I tend to lean towards the more non-evasive process yeah. because it's just easier and you can make that adjustment really, really quickly rather than you being a couple minutes into a effort, take your lactate, make sure that it's a good reading of lactate and then making an adjustment from there and then coming back and retesting. All mm-hmm. that costs money. All it does is also equivalent as time. So I think that there's a lot of tools out there that you can implement into your day-to-day utilization and allow you to make better measurements rather than just saying, I got to do this amount of watts. And if if I hit this amount of watts, it's a successful day. If I don't hit this amount of watts, it's not a successful day. And that's not, that is not where things are because really in the grand scheme, you could have skipped that workout. You could have done a lot of other mm-hmm. things you got the workout in, but if you adapted it to what your like ability was that day, you still got better today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I I love that because I think it, it brings me back to like track workouts back in the day where people would be like, okay, well you got to hit seventy five for each four hundred that we're doing today, and people would just like think they're total failures if they hit a seventy six, but they would be like, oh well, I won the workout today because I hit a seventy four. And you're like, in all actuality, those are both one second away, you know, from the actual, like what the prescribed workout is. And most likely that 76 is going to give you, it's going to give you almost the identical response versus that 74, except that 74 might've actually been, you know, a little too hard even. And, you know, people I think have a tendency to go a little bit too hard compared to too easy, especially like type A individuals, you know, in the, in the Ironman sort of, you know, age grouper pushing themselves sort of, sort of realm. Well, and I think that, that you just touched on something very valuable is that by maybe changing that approach for that athlete on the 800 example that you used and you, you guide them by effort. Mm Mm-hmm they walk away with a completely different mental outlook of how they perform that day. Like I work with two high school athletes and their father is very, very like he wants to see the heart rate at a certain level. And I'm like, well, when we're doing track season, heart rate doesn't matter because the heart rate does not like elevate with effort at that point. Mm -hmm. It takes a little while for it to catch up. But two, it's, He's also, the other thing is very specific on, well, we want to hit these times. I'm not as worried about those times. I want to make sure that you today are giving me that effort that Mm -hmm. I'm asking for. So if we have VO2 max work and we're looking at it and say, I want the effort of a ratings of perceived exertion of a nine, nine and a half. Mm -hmm. I would feel a heck of a lot better if you missed that by three or four seconds, but you answered that question of, did I give a nine to nine and a half per, uh, RPE? If you say yes, I'm I'm happy mm-hmm. with that. And I've I found within that work with especially that group, of course, they're still. I mean, they're competing against a lot of other high school athletes. Their brains and everything else are still kind of evolving. I feel like they walk away from workouts in a much more positive. Uh, positive outlook rather than before we were working because it was either a pass fail grade. It wasn't Mm -hmm. a A, B, C or D. Mm -hmm. You just, you did it or you didn't. And 
let, let's look at it at a couple of different angles. And I feel that also helps from a mental standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to a CrossFit coach about this quite a bit. And I think, I think CrossFit actually could lend itself really well to uh, development of like high school individuals because it gives them that exact thing. Like, Oh, you can't do handstand pushups right now. Perfect. It's just something we get to work to- towards, right? Oh, maybe today you can't hit a 75 for a 400. That's okay. We're going to teach you how to dial it in to nine to nine and a half of your RPE. And, you know, can like, then you ask them after the workout, Hey, did you hit nine to nine and a half? Like, what do you think? And they're like, yeah, I hit that. It's like, then you did exactly what I asked you today. That's a, that's a win. Right. And, you know, I think, I think that gives people a little bit of grace to, you know, not have to be perfect every single day. I certainly felt, uh, you know, in high school, especially I put a lot of pressure on myself to be perfect every single time with anything that I was actually doing. And if I wasn't perfect, then, you know, I would just beat myself up. Oh, I missed, missed the, missed three questions on the test. Oh, uh, you know, missed my splits by, you know, like five seconds. I just can't get there, you know? And, you know, I didn't have anybody telling me like my, my dad was, you know, my dad, because he's my dad had to say this sort of stuff. I was like, if you can look yourself in the mirror and say, you gave your best effort, that's all we can ask for. And, but at the same time, like, you know, he's my dad, so I'm not going to listen to him quite as much as I do now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but, but if I had a coach saying that, right, it, it would have, you know, resonated quite a bit, you know, it would have given me the okay to say, slow it down a little bit. Um, and go ahead. I, I also feel like it's that kind of principle of analysis by paralysis or paralysis by analysis kind of thought where sometimes when you're in that mindset as an athlete and you're over assessing your, either your performance or your coming performance, you're stru- you're re- you're releasing a heck of a lot of cortisol. Your muscles are more tense. You're more likely to have either soft tissue issues or body breakdowns. Uh, there's a lot of things that can kind of come hand in hand with that by overstressing yourself for what really is a practice in that case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's that's something that people have to remind themselves of is like practice is a place where we can fail and we can get better. Races are a place where we're trying to put together our optimal performance, right? We need everything to kind of be operating on full cylinders. So, and that should be the same, you know, with, with like school and with life and everything It's like, you know, most of the time you're, you're not actually say performing, you're practicing and RP all we're aiming for is an RP of nine to 9.5. And, you know, if you're hitting that on any given day and you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, Hey, I hit that. That's that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's that I like that, you know, you give people the ability to, to pivot and, you know, kind of like use that RPE because that's something that has become really big in the research field. It's like RPE, like, um, you know, should we just use RPE to guide all of our training as opposed to heart rate, as opposed to power output. And uh, again, I think there's a time and a place for it. Um, I also think there's a time and a place for just using power, right? Um, you know, yeah. it's like, well, if your performance is, uh, if you have to hit 400 Watts for five minutes, 
for your performance, sometimes you need to just go test that and see how close to that you can actually get. Um, so, so I'm a proponent of, of all things, uh, you know, all tools, all of those sort of things. Um, but you have to use it in, in a, in a, the right context. Um, I think the last thing that we, we've touched on VO2 max, we kind of touched on efficiency a little bit earlier and we've touched on thresholds, but I'd like to revisit kind of this idea of efficiency. Um, just get your kind of opinion on how do you use efficiency economy, those sort of things? Is it even something you really think about? In my opinion, it's a little bit like it's harder to increase, but you increase it by just being consistent over time. Yeah, it's from a coaching perspective, I think that this is an area where a lot of coaches probably overlook this piece. And it's you have to find the way to to use it and use it successfully. But like I, I have one athlete in mind where a lot of his runs early in our relationship, he would talk about like, feels like I'm muscling through. I feel like I'm like a lot of his notes led me to say, you got to be running really upright. You, you aren't allowing gravity to really help you run in this case. So you're really, you're coming off of a bike, legs are fatigued, and then you're having to ask your muscles to do more of the work rather than just kind of fall into the movement and what we have continued like that led me to looking at his i did some gait analysis on him dude you are almost like standing backward like your 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 angle is almost backwards in that case so yeah it makes a heck of a lot of sense to me why you're feeling this way Mm -hmm. so i think it is very very valuable and it's something that can really provide sizable gains for your athletes but from a coaching standpoint i feel like you have to be super perceptive if it's not something that you normally do you just have to get comfortable with listening to some of those markers and say okay this is what we need to do the thing for me is being a certified gait analysis instructor like I it's something that automatically triggers that okay I want to make sure where our breakdowns are and if we can make you more efficient here's why and this is why it's important but I think mm-hmm. it's something that's been in my background it's something that is early on conversation in my coaching but heck yeah it has a huge I mean if I guess I look at it as if you put this on the top of your priority list, you can make a runner quickly lose 30 to 45 seconds. Also, you're giving them probably some endurance gains along that as well because Mm -hmm. they're just not asking or being as taxing on their body. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's kind of what we were touching on with like the swimming portion of things too, right? You know, if you if, if you can swim effectively in the pool, then you're going to save energy. You're going to go faster. So it's just a a win, win, win. You're going to set yourself up for less risk of injury because, you know, maybe you're not pulling as much with, with inappropriate muscle groups. Um, same thing with running. 
So, you know, so from that perspective, mate, it's like, you know, if, if you are a coach who gets to coach, you know, gets to coach in person, watching them swim, watching your athlete run, um, making sure that they're not doing stuff that's like, you know, really weird and wonky. Cause like any, so when I was really into running, every time I'd see a runner run by, I'd like watch them and just be like, yeah, like, you know, and I could see like five or six things that I'd be like, ah, I'd probably change that. Um, and, you know, it's like, I'm not a certified gait analysis or analyzer or anything like that, but I think it, it would be worth it, you know, for somebody, you know, if you're interested in, in trying to figure out if you are efficient, either go and do, you know, a, a metabolic test or go to somebody who is a certified, you know, uh, has the certification in gait analysis because, they'll be able to look at you and they'll be able to say, Oh, you're, you're a little bit inefficient here. Maybe if you lean forward a little bit more, maybe if your cadence is a little bit higher, that might help. Um, and then it's the same thing with, with getting like a bike fit, right? Bike fit, especially when you're in the arrow position is going to give you a, a potentially a huge amount of gains. Um, and if you get a proper bike fit, then it's even better. So you need to make sure that, you know, you're, you're not too aggressive. You need to make sure you're not too upright. You need to make sure you're kind of, um, you know, hitting, hitting all of those, you know, kind of like requirements of being able to stay in arrow for a long time. And this is where I probably see in triathlon and maybe just biking in general, where the biggest opportunity lies is mm -hmm. like, CDA scores matter and that's your co-drag efficient. It's how quickly or how, like how slippery you are through the wind. And right. it's very similarly swimming when you don't have great hydrodynamics, you're causing a lot of drag. You're going to be slower. A lot of the, I have conversations with athletes and I've had this issue in the past where you race and you're like, man, my Watts were right on point, but I was, eight, nine, 10 minutes slower than I really expected to be, what ends up being, you probably, there was something out of alignment that was causing you to eat wind in that case and just mm -hmm. cause too much of a disturbance behind you. So I think it's, we've always kind of leaned towards better swim technique, better run form to allow for these efficiencies there. But where I see efficiency also having a big, big avenue to, to gain is from the biking side of things. Mm -hmm. And just you're seeing it now with uh, organizations coming out with like the calf sleeves that are more aerodynamic. You're seeing right. athletes across the board start to put water bottles down their, down their uh, front of their uh, tri kits. These things are getting them off the bike faster because, and they're not putting out any more effort. In mm -hmm. some cases, they might even be able to get away with less effort, but they're getting off the bike faster because they're, they're creating less drag and they're cutting through that wind. That's much, that much more efficiently. Mm -hmm. So I think when from the triathlon aspect, there's gains to be made in all three of those phases of getting eyes on you, looking at your swim, efficiency in the water, making sure that you're not, you know, in that line where your feet are dragging the bottom of the pool or the right. lake in that case, the bike, you have that ability to kind of build in whether you might not have the mobility to get deeper, but there are other things that you can now add to 
the front of your surface space to break that area to allow you to be more slippery. And then from the run aspect, it, it really is about how if you are in poor run form, you are going to burn. Your substrate utilization is going to be greater. Your demand is going to be greater. And the longer your event is, the less or the more likely you are to be flirting with that end of calorie kind of bonk mm-hmm. situation. So I feel like getting a gait analysis is another one of those things that is each one of those is going to be worth its weight of the cost. If you get it done by a professional that knows what they're doing, mm-hmm. you're going to get time savings and it's going to provide you with long term savings rather than just buying a new bike or buying a, a training plan that, that you know, the, these things all coming together are great. But if you're going to spend some money, have somebody look at your form. It's a lot mm-hmm. of the time is going to be the biggest or the best money that you can invest. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been a, always been a huge fan of, you know, like pay to upgrade your engine and your body versus the machines that are, you know, like, especially with a bike. Right. And you know, there's, there's something to say about if you have ex- a little bit of expendable income, yeah, a bike is going to help you reduce, you know, some amount of wattage, but if you want to be the most effective athlete that you're always going to be changing your form and having, you know, good, efficient form is a, it's not an easy fix, but it's a fix that will be there no matter what race you are doing, no matter what bike you're wearing or you bike you're riding, no matter what clothes you're wearing, anything like that. So, um, yeah, I, I think, Oh man, those are great insights. Uh, I, I hope everyone else really appreciates how, how much wisdom was just shared in terms of, you know, like all of like the, the stuff that Aaron was talking about. Um, but, and I think we're going to continue on this discussion a little bit more of like, you know, performance variables and maybe how to actually improve them in the next episode. So, uh, if you guys have any questions, um, you know, this, this is going to be on like Spotify, Apple, you know, YouTube, you can find me, uh, at critical O2 on Instagram. So DM me, if you have any questions, you can find Aaron at, uh, try a geyser, uh, on, uh, Instagram as well. If you have any questions for him, um, I don't know if he's, if he's taken athletes or anything like that, but never hurts to just ask him. Um, and then from the YouTube perspective, if you're on YouTube, leave a comment down below and Aaron and I will either discuss it on the podcast or we'll, we'll answer it in the, in the comment section. So thanks everybody for listening and we'll catch you guys in the next one. Hi everyone. Welcome back to the critical oxygen podcast, where we help you optimize your physiology and maximize your athletic potential. I'm your host, Phil Batterson, and today we are joined by continuing guest host, Aaron Gate. I'm your host, Phil Batterson, and today we are joined by... God damn it.